0: Before we start today, I want to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast, Certified Site Safety. This is a company that I am proud to recommend for patients of mine and anyone else seeking help in evaluating mold and other toxins that might be present in their home. If you've listened to a prior podcast of mine, Is Your Home Killing You?, you know that I interviewed Joe Reese, who is a true mold detective, Joe evaluates homes and has saved many of my patients from toxins in their home by evaluating them and teaching them how to remedy it. If you see or smell any effects of water damage in your home, Joe and his team at the Certified Site Safety are the team that you want. Their website is www.certifiedsightsafety.com, and Joe welcomes calls to even his cell phone, 914. 914- So many of us don't know where to turn when our home is making us sick. Now you know. Please contact Certified Site Safety and Joe will help organize his team to remedy your problem. Welcome everybody to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today we are going to discuss why low blood pressure can be as dangerous as high blood pressure. Most of us as we age worry about high blood pressure or hypertension. And fortunately, there are many excellent medications to control hypertension. However, the opposite problem, low blood pressure, or hypotension, that's with an O, doesn't get as much attention, but it can be very serious and a debilitating problem. And I just had a patient with this this past week that I was working with. There are multiple causes of low blood pressure, ranging from diabetes to neurological diseases. And there's a condition we're going to really focus on called postural orthostatic hypotension, which occurs when patients go from lying down to standing up. And now this is something also that we're seeing in patients uh, with long-haul COVID syndrome because of autonomic dystomia, a very technical term, but things that people are hearing more and more. My guest today, Dr. Aldo Pechado, came to my attention from reading a review article that he published in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, an excellent journal I love reading every month, uh, where he discusses the various causes and treatments of hypotension. Dr. Pichotto is a staff physician at Yale University School of Medicine, and he's actually the clinical chief of nephrology. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Aldo Pichotto to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure
0: to be here. So Dr. Pichotto, I always like to ask all my guests this, and so you will be no different. What got you interested in your field, specifically in the kidney? That's what nephrologists study because i you know it's really funny i was thinking about this for a few months and hoping to do a podcast with a nephrologist because i feel like like it's the ignored organ in the body people you know everybody gets really all sexy about the heart and the cardiologist and the gi tract, and there's this organ the kidney which is really important for filtering out you know the toxins in the body and everything and if it's not working right you got a big problem so what got you interested in nephrology
1: so I'll be glad to answer that. And actually, there's a plug-in that you may not have noticed. So March is kidney month, mm. and yesterday was World Kidney Day. It's always the 10th of March. Oh, so wow. How perfectly coincidental. Time. And you didn't even know that.
0: I didn't know that. And,
1: and one of the goals of World Kidney Day is to increase awareness about kidney disease because it's actually quite common. What got me interested in kidney disease was a combination of uh, it complex physiology. So it's, a, it's an organ that's very intriguing in the way it handles not only fluid, right? Urine is not just water coming out. It's, uh, it's everything else that comes in that, 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 that has to be excreted from the body. So, so I got very intrigued in that. But I'm going to confess to you that uh, at the end of medical school, I was considering cardiology as well. I just wound up during residency, I noticed that I I, I like taking care i, I didn 't like some of the acute parts of cardiology I just didn 't like it as much and and nephrology was then rose to to the top of my preferences but my my liking for cardiovascular disease never went away, so I mm-hmm. became a hypertension specialist, so a lot of my in the twenty five years that i 've been in nephrology uh, a lot of that time was devoted to research in hypertension, research in how the blood vessels and the heart behave in in high blood pressure. And to the point of our discussion today, low blood pressure, I developed an interest in that about 15, 20 years ago, mostly because of a vacuum uh, there was, uh, there, there's a limited number of people who are comfortable uh, treating that. And I'm very comfortable with low blood pressure because I take care of patients in the ICU with very low blood pressure. And I'm very comfortable with high blood pressure. So it became part of a continuum. And here I am talking about low blood pressure.
0: That's really fascinating because it's true. Most nephrologists are associated with chronic kidney disease, dialysis, and obviously hypertension. And again it was interesting when I had this patient that I was trying to help in New York it was really a challenge to find a doctor that was very specialized in this I actually ended up finding somebody at NYU that because they have what's called a dysautonomia clinic where they see a lot of different kind of cases where the nervous system is causing the ple- pressure to be low So let's go on just for our listeners to understand you know how do we define or or actually differentiate what's maybe mild normal hypotension from something like orthostatic hypotension. If you want to give us like some numbers, examples, you know, what a blood pressure and a heart rate would be, or however you like to explain it to your patients.
1: Sure. So, so orthostatic hypotension is the term that we use for this. And it's orthostatic just means that it's something that develops when someone stands up that's what orth- orthostasis means so you stand up and the blood pressure drops by you know you, just using an arbitrary definition it's when the top number the systolic blood pressure drops by more than 20 points and the diastolic blood or the diastolic blood pressure drops by more than 10 points our brain notices drops in systolic blood pressure more than it does about diastolic blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So uh, I always give much more relevance to what's happening to the top number, the Mm -hmm. systolic blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So if it drops by more than 20, it qualifies as orthostatic hypotension. In people who have High blood pressure to begin with then and and that arbitrarily means that if your blood pressure lying down is greater than one fifty over ninety that's the threshold, then we, ex- we we consider a drop greater than thirty as the one that meets the definition okay. but I want to qualify this a little bit more because people often forget very few people develop symptoms. And by symptoms, I mean dizziness, lightheadedness, tiredness, changes in the vision, inability to concentrate, pain in the back of the neck and shoulders when they stand up. Very few people develop that until the top number, the systolic blood pressure is below about 100, 110. So while the blood pressure dropping from, let's say, 140 to 118 would qualify as orthostatic hypotension. It may not be the full reason for the symptoms. So I think that those are important things to know. 20 is sort of the magic number, but it's got to be down to a very low yeah. number. Mm-hmm. So, so those are those are the, the the more important things that we take into account. And I'll let you give me guidance of when you want me to talk of what else we take into account to 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 def, to try to decide what's causing that.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. No, I think it's really important and you just kind of jumped a little bit ahead which was great because again a patient may say, "Well, how do I know I have this?" And you just went through as you said it could be asymptomatic for a while and then there's also the other symptoms which get more concerning for patients like when they feel like they are getting lightheaded or even obviously more severe things when the visual blurring, or I think you mentioned even your article muffled hearing, which I didn't even think about. Mm-hmm. And of course, like that coat hanger pain, as you described in the article where people get pain in their neck and shoulders, which I found fascinating. And of course the worst case scenario is with somebody obviously literally faints or what we call in medical terms syncope. So, you know, this is obviously super concerning for patients and you know, it's what's, what I see in my practice, which is interesting, I, I see a lot of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, I did a podcast uh, many months ago with a doctor at Johns Hopkins, who's actually, he, saw, he specialized in children and adolescents that had chronic fatigue syndrome, and he found a high percentage of them had postural orthostatic hypotension. And, you know, one of the questions he would always ask these patients was like if you were standing in line at the movies back in the old days when people went to movies <laughs> or a concert, was it difficult? Did you have to sit down after a while because they didn't realize but their blood pressure was dropping and that's what was you know really making them feel unwell? Maybe you can discuss also too how you do in your office, if it can be done in an office or it has to be done in a specialized facility, how you examine a patient with this and, and actually Um, you know, make a more definitive diagnosis.
1: Okay. So that does not need to be done in the office. I actually, since I have a relatively uh, large referral area, I do a lot of this by telehealth. Oh, interesting. So I can can coach patients how to obtain what we call orthostatic vital signs. And there are certain principles. So you want to first know what your blood pressure is lying down. And mm-hmm. to do that, you need to lie down. And this is, by the way, very different from how we manage high blood pressure. Measurement mm-hmm. of blood pressure in people with hypertension is different. Okay. But for the evaluation of this, you want to lie down for at least five minutes mm-hmm. quietly, and you measure your blood pressure lying down. Preferably, you do two measurements because we like to average the blood pressure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in each position. Mm-hmm. Then the standard method is you stand up preferably for at least three minutes, and you check your blood pressure at the end of the first minute and at the end of the third minute, and that's what's going to define the orthostatic hypotension. I Mm. told you the drop by more Mm -hmm. than 20 over 10. Mm -hmm. Many patients, actually most patients, already develop orthostatic hypotension at the end of the first minute. So if the blood pressure dropped a lot, they don't need to continue to stand up. At Yes, uh, right. They're going to pass out. You're going to have somebody on the floor.
0: Exactly. Can I ask you a question? So you don't have them sit, like make that transition? We don't. We don't. So
1: the the four diagnosis, it's straight lying down to standing Standing. up. You just sit down to get your bearings and stand Mm -hmm. up. Okay. On the other hand, I do use... So that's more, that has more to do with treatment. I like to know what the seated blood pressure is because we will talk about treatments and mm-hmm. some of the treatments that I give increase the blood pressure during the day and they may increase the blood pressure too much mm-hmm. when they lie down. So right. I may, I may, so I need to know what the blood pressure is sitting up as well, but that's not for diagnosis. That's mostly for Okay, We'll get to
0: that. hmm Yeah. All right, that's really helpful. So they don't need the fancy tilt table test or is there a place for that? Because people may have heard of that or- To
1: be true with you, so in Mm -hmm. patients with established orthostatic hypotension, and if I have a cause for it, Formal autonomic testing, which includes a tilt table and several procedures that we do. And tilt table for the, the 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 listener, what that means is you put someone lying on a mechanical table.
0: Yes, I've seen it. I just saw it for the first time when I went with this patient to the specialty clinic. Yeah,
1: yeah you get you get strapped to the table, and then Man. the table the table the table tilts automatically to typically about seventy degrees, mm-hmm. 70 to eighty degrees, and you observe how the patient does with that. That the response to tilting is. Is a little bit different from the response to standing mm-hmm. what you want to do is, by that test is just induce what happens with standing the reason right. why blood pressure drops when you stand and i'd like to talk about this sure. because it will be important to interpreting the next step which is sure. what's causing it is that once you stand up blood pools just by function of gravity blood pools in the lower extremities,
0: right.
1: so legs, thighs, and also uh, in the in the blood vessels of the pelvis. And it's usually depending on body size, somewhere between 500 and 700 mLs that, that pool there. And when that happens, the body has to adapt to it. And the, be- the body adapts to that by increasing the flow from the brain of hormones that are adrenaline-like. It's mm-hmm. not really adrenaline. It's something called noradrenaline, but it's kind of similar to adrenaline.
0: Right, right.
1: And what that does, it increases the, the tone of the veins in the legs so that the veins get tighter, and that they, they helps push back some of the blood that got pulled there back towards the the, the heart, It increases the tone of the arteries so that the blood pressure uh, can get higher. And it increases the heart rate so that the heart can beat faster to to compensate for that blood pooling. So those are the normal responses. So if someone has a problem with one of these three steps, or four steps, the first one is the brain doesn't get the message. (laughs) <laughs> so there's prob- there's some problem in relaying the message mm. to the brain or the brain doesn't process the message or the, the, the flow of that message out of the brain doesn't make it to the heart so that the heart doesn't accelerate, doesn't make it to the arteries so that the, the arteries don't constrict and doesn't make it to the veins so the veins don't constrict. So when you lose those responses, That's when you develop orthostatic hypotension.
0: Mm. That's a great explanation, by the way. And it shows actually how important the brain and the nervous system is to this. And it kind of helps me transition to my next question for you. Um, How do you explain or can you explain how autonomic neuropathy, again, that's with our nervous system that we really can't control. That's That's what autonomic means just for our listeners, you know, versus something like motor where we can say, okay, I want to move my hand you know, the autonomic nervous system is the essentially the unconscious part of our nervous system. How does, the, I, there are a lot of conditions, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, that um, can cause this autonomic neuropathy, but how does that cause orthostatic hypotension? Is that sort of how you just explained it? Because, I mean, there's a, a bunch, you list in your article, which is really interesting, like, you know, so many, diabetes, me- you know, me- mellitus, obviously, is probably one of the most common causes of these autonomic neuropathy, and where patients lose feeling in their, in their extremities and stuff like that too, but there are other things too, like drugs and, and even neurological diseases like Parkinson's. So, do you can you give us sort of an explanation how that how that neuropathy causes the orthostatic hypertension? Is sure. it from the brain or is it from peripheral nerves? I mean, sure.
1: So it can happen at any any of these sites. So okay. think of it. Let's use the thermostat mm. uh, analogy. Okay,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: so you have wires that, you know, you know, you have somewhere that senses the temperature, the wires get back to the thermostat, the thermostat processes that temperature, and then sends wires out to whatever to the air conditioner or to, mm-hmm. the, or to the, the, the heating unit. And, you know, you rev up the AC or you rev up the heat to adjust the temperature appropriately. So you can have problems in the temperature sensor. You can have problems in the wires that go down to the thermostat. You can have problems in the thermostat unit itself, in the wires that go out, or in the heater or the air conditioner, right? So any of those portions. So when you have a neurological disorder of any type, um, you can have some dysfunction of these units. So if you have a neuropathy, which, you know, let's use diabetes, which is the most common cause of a neuropathy. You have degeneration of the nerves. Now, it starts typically in the feet, right? People who get tingling, numbness, mm-hmm. pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, it can progress and involve some different kinds of nerve fibers that, that make up the autonomic mm-hmm. nervous system. So what you do is you, you end up unable to transmit information from the, the periphery to the brain. And information back from the brain to the places that matter for this heart and blood vessels. So, so that's how it can happen over time. Now, that's usually a very slowly progressive. So it's some uh, process. So someone who started having foot tingling ten years ago and now has full hmm. own involvement, not only of the extremities, but also of the... Other well, I like
0: your explanation earlier before, too, so that makes sense. So, like, the distal wires, let's say, in this circuit are not sending back the signal to the thermostat, you know, because you're so you're busy looking at the thermostat, and the thermostat's not changing or adapting to raise, in this case, the blood pressure, you know, obviously, on the thermostat case, the temperature, to explain this. But what I find also very interesting is that, because it could be a little deceptive, a lot of... Quote, what we call metabolic conditions, like which diabetes is or some other things we'll talk about can actually progress or become neurological problems, right? It's like- That's when That's correct. Yeah. That's
1: correct. And there, there's a host of, of diseases yeah. that can do that. But an important point to this, Dean, is that you can tell that you can tell if there's something neurological or not by the response. The, 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 the measure of that is the change in heart rate. Right. So if, if I stand you up and your blood pressure drops, but your heart rate goes up substantially. And, and the, the, the magic number that we use is if the heart rate goes up by more than half of the drop in blood pressure. So, for example, me the give drop, an example, the blood pressure drops by 50. Mm. I'm expecting the heart rate to go up at least by 25.
0: Okay. You follow that? Mm-hmm.
1: So, if the heart rate went up by more than 25, it's less likely that there is a neurological.
0: So, it's problem. more cardiac, potentially. No, so, so,
1: so, what's happening Whoa. is the autonomic nervous system is intact.
0: Oh, okay. So for example, it's, let's it's say, working. the thermostat's working.
1: That's correct. Let's say and all the wires. So let's yeah. say let's say you get dehydrated. You have yes. a you have a, a diarrheal illness. Right,
0: right. Mm-hmm.
1: And you're you you you're you're getting dehydrated. You stand up. I'm I'm pretty sure all of us have had this that. This has all happened, yes. Yeah, Every sure. time I get the flu, I feel like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, I get dehydrated. I stand up. My blood pressure may drop, I don't know, 40 points. My heart rate increases by 40 points right and i don't feel good but there's nothing wrong with my with my autonomic nervous system i'm responding mm. appropriately right. to being dehydrated the treatment for that is give me fluids right and uh and and so so that response of the heart rate is a very important point point. and then you can have diseases that initially involve parts of the nervous system so so for example the most commonly one, common ones that we see are Diabetes that causes a neuropathy and then involves the autonomic nervous system. There's a disease called amyloidosis, and there are several flavors. Yeah, of Yeah, that's
0: another condition that, as you probably know too, gets so overlooked in medicine because there's not really a specialist for that. I mean, it's not obviously a, you know, a primary care doctor is going to be unlikely to pick that up. It's and there's not really an you know an area in medicine you know that specializes in something like that. I mean, you know,
1: well the hematologists so hematologists pathology yeah. oncologists are the ones that that uh, manage a good amount of uh, of, right? of mm-hmm. our patients with amyloidosis and we see a lot of them because we have a large cancer center mm-hmm. so so we see a lot of of amyloidosis here the same thing with drugs there's a variety especially drugs to treat cancer they are neurotoxic and mm, and quite, they can point. they can cause similar syndromes so so that is how diseases that affect the nerves uh, do that then there are also diseases that affect primarily the brain things like parkinson's disease where you have a problem in the way you handle dopamine, there's a decrease mm-hmm. in dopamine in certain portions of the brain. And that leads to disturbances in how catecholamines, catecholamines are the substances like epinephrine. and right. the, the, We epinephrine. call
0: them neurotransmitters, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are
1: disturbances in those not only in the brain, but also peripherally. So in the heart, and mm-hmm. at the nerve endings. So, so you end up with people who initially with Parkinson's just have tremors or they, are, they have a slow uh, walk. And over time, they develop orthostatic hypotension. That one is a combination of what's happening in the periphery and some disturbances of what's happening in the brain itself. So that's why there are many neurological causes. But those are all marked by an inability of the heart rate to increase Mm -hmm. when you stand up.
0: You know, as you mentioned in the article, and you're explaining that too, there could be obviously a wide variety of underlying illnesses that cause this problem, which is, again, I want to emphasize to my listeners, it's a dangerous problem because if if you, you know, your pressure drops like that too, you're ready to drop to the floor you can crack your skull, you can break a, you know, get a fracture somewhere. I mean, just a lot of bad things can happen. What tests should be ordered or done sort of as a routine, like you check it off, you know, again, do you do things to just check the heart, whether it's an echo or EKG? Do you do uh, what's called like an EMG, where you check the conduction of the nerves? Do you do, as you maybe mentioned, you know, a skin biopsy for amyloidosis? Take me through a few things that you think are really critical in evaluating a patient that's not really super clear cut why they have orthostatic hypotension.
1: Okay. It's important. So so what I would advise the listener first is that if they have symptoms that happen predominantly when they stand up and things like dizziness, lightheadedness, Mm. ask the doctor to check the blood pressure standing up that's a that's, right right which to, gets
0: ignored because everybody's it, always, it, t- always telling amazing. you to sit down and it's relax It's amazing
1: right? how right. so many times people tell me you know i've been complaining that i i'm dizzy when i stand up for a while and nobody has checked my blood pressure standing up so that's very simple the second so once you document that Everybody should have at least an evaluation of a, their, uh, what we call a complete metabolic panel. Why? Right. Because people with kidney disease and people with liver disease, both of which are picked up by a complete metabolic panel, can have orthostatic hypotension. Okay? Mm, so that's okay. easy. Okay. Everybody should have a blood count. Why? Because people with anemia can mm. get orthostatic hypotension. Everybody should have a an EKG. Mm -hmm. Why an EKG? Because you got to make sure that the heart is conducting the impulse correctly. You you got to make sure that it's not that the heart. If they have an
0: underlying heart, what we call bradycardia, low heart rate. They can't compensate. You don't you don't want to
1: blame you don't want to blame the nervous system when the problem is in the is in the wiring of the heart. Mm -hmm. So everybody should have a, a cardiogram. My practice always involves measuring, obtaining an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And the reason I do that is because it confirms that the heart has normal function. It confirms that there's no fluid around the heart, something called pericardial effusion, which can be a cause of that. And it gives me a general sense that at least I don't have to worry about the heart with some of the treatments that I may use. Okay. Okay. Everything else that's down towards the the evaluation of neurological causes will be driven by the pattern of symptoms. So patients who have neuropathy type symptoms, I may, I'm not a neurologist, full disclosure, I'm, you know, I see lots of these patients so I know the basic workup, but I work a lot with our uh, neurologists. For, in, in this case, they would be the neuromuscular neurologists, so that we will do a, a, an evaluation of neuropathy. We look for, for causes that are related to the bone marrow, causes that, that are related to nutrition, causes that are related to infections. And there are some specific blood tests that we can do for that. We, we screen the medications that the patient is taking or has taken recently. So for example, what I said about many, many cancer treatment.
0: Cancer drugs, others. right. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so we want to we pay attention to that. And when things are not fitting right, then we can do more advanced tests. So for example, something called an EMG-NCS. EMG is electromyography. NCS is nerve conduction studies. You want to see how the impulses, the nerve impulses are, are conducted in, by the nerves. And we can get to, in, in, in some people that have normal EMGs, uh, you can do a skin biopsy and the goal of the skin biopsy there is it allows you to diagnose some conditions like amyloidosis as you said but it also allows you to to evaluate the integrity of nerve fibers which can Mm -hmm. happen in something called small fiber neuropathy and there's a whole list of yeah that's a big one
0: you know just so our listeners know too a lot of patients that have fibromyalgia It's something that anyone should be looked into carefully. Again, it gets overlooked. It's it's there are some treatments for that. Uh, Good, really, really important point. So, no, that's excellent. Okay. And as far as like the EMG, do you think that's typically needed in or? Only,
1: only in people who have neuropathic symptoms. If someone has a completely normal peripheral uh, exam, exam. Mm-hmm. I usually, no oh. symptoms and a normal exam, I usually don't send it.
0: But, oh, you know, what was very interesting you know, with this patient that I went with, because like, I actually was my, the, uh, you know, one of my most complicated patients. So I actually went to the center with the patient, you know, with his visit to the doctor at the disordered center in NYU. And they had, it was very interesting. I, 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 this is what it's called it was you know he put his feet on some type of instrument i don't know is that the nova autonomic test the finipress it was like he put his feet on it and it showed that he unfortunately had no neurological responses coming from his legs
1: yeah so i don't know exactly what test that was but what can be done is you can measure sweat output
0: yeah so maybe um, okay maybe that was it also
1: right? that's sweat, right mm, good point because sweat is uh, sweat production is mediated by the autonomic nervous system right. so in formal autonomic testing we test the amount of of sweat production it's part of a standard battery of tests and uh you know autonomic testing which is you mentioned the nova Finipress, which we use and it's it's Really useful for patients where you're not sure if there is significant dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm. or not. If someone who drops the blood pressure 100 points when they stand up, nothing happens to the heart rate, and they have some peripheral symptoms, I don't even bother. I'm not going to learn anything from the the autonomic uh, nervous system testing. So that has more value in research rather than in clinical practice. But in cases where I'm not certain of what the function of the autonomic nervous system is, that's when formal autonomic testing is valuable
0: you know this patient just i want to bring it up because it was actually i think it was to me it was an amazing teaching case in a sense too unfortunately uh wonderful wonderful person but he had suffered with long-standing type 1 diabetes you know for maybe 25 years and he also had cardiac issues he had stents put in and stuff like that too but that, later on he developed atrial fibrillation and they had to do an ablation. I know this is getting all very complicated, but the last part, which I wanted to ask you about, was they actually had to put a pacemaker in. So it was set at like 75. Now, how does that factor in? Because now all of a sudden, no matter what, where he, whether he was lying, standing, or sitting, the pacemaker went at 75. Because I guess the pacemaker can't adjust for... Sitting or standing or can it?
1: You can. So most of the modern pacemakers allow for some uh, heart rate adjustment uh, with, uh, and it's largely driven by temperature. So as you increase core temperature, Mm -hmm. for example, with activity, with standing, it doesn't change very much. Mm -hmm. And with tilting, it really doesn't help very much. So autonomic testing, like the one your patient had in the presence of a pacemaker, you can only interpret some elements of the test that are not based on heart rate so for example if you start looking at the changes in heart rate that are supposed to happen with slow deep breathing nothing's going to happen you're going to get a flat line mm-hmm. you inspiration okay. expiration the heart rate looks the exactly same. the mm-hmm. same yeah but you are able to detect the changes in blood pressure and the magnitude of the changes in blood pressure for example during something called the valsalva maneuver mm-hmm. which in the lab we do by having the patient blow on a on a tube to mm-hmm. a certain pressure right. and that's that's a useful test to 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 Quantify how severe the the dysfunction is, but usually you don't need it for diagnosis okay. in your case, it sounds like someone who has advanced type 1 diabetes with neuropathy related to it and probably very limited autonomic
0: responses yeah all right let's get to also probably one of the most important parts of this whole thing, and what I'm very interested in I'm sure the listeners are too who may have a a friend, a family member, or themselves what the treatments that are available. And I'll let you discuss that. And we'll start with the the old uh, phrase "do no harm." So, you know, talking about, I guess, you know, medication review. So, how would you go about looking to to treat a patient that has? So, this? so
1: I think that the first step, and 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 this is there there are well established guidelines for this. The first step is you remove things that can be a problem. There's a list of medications that can be a problem that can worsen orthostatic hypotension. Mm -hmm. You need to remove drugs that lower blood pressure. So very often the management of high blood pressure, by the way, you should know that high blood pressure and, and orthostatic hypotension often coexist hmm. these are often well right that,
0: that this is extremely important for our listeners because I, again when a doctor you know starting off sees a patient that has a high blood pressure 140 150 maybe 160 and maybe they are very sensitive so their pressure could drop a lot and then you're hearing them complain they feel dizzy they don't feel well on the medication
1: So in that part, and that is where uh, a a seasoned specialist in in cardiovascular or autonomic disorders can be of help. Mm -hmm. You need to get rid of drugs that lower blood pressure throughout the day. Essentially, you have to cut a balance in which during the day you accept higher blood pressures so that the blood pressure when you stand up is reasonable so you don't pass out. And you need to treat the blood pressure during the night with shorter acting drugs so that you don't continue to have high blood pressures lying down when you are not going to be getting up so right. at that time
0: a, you can
1: a, do it but during the day you know you want to go about your life it's a balancing
0: and act for sure
1: <laughs> so so long the, the management of hypertension becomes completely different the kind of drugs that we have to use are very different from how we manage the uncomplicated patient with high blood pressure so step one is a review of medications
0: and one other thing too just because you mentioned in the article about antidepressants which are used quite frequently in patients Are there any ones that stand out that you
1: any of the long-acting drugs so i'll, I'll tell like you the
0: ssris the... or so, the so, older ones oh
1: you're talking about drugs that are not related to, to to blood pressure so there are so think of it as neurological drugs Okay. So, SSRIs are seldom a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the most commonly prescribed right. for depression. Tricyclic antidepressants are often a problem. Okay. Opioids are often a problem. Right. Benzodiazepines are often a problem. Okay. So these are the uh, and some anti uh, you know anti seizure medications. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you keep those classes of drugs in mind, if you If someone tells you, I've been on this for 10 years and my symptoms started two years ago, I'm not going to be stopping something that has been working just because of this. If they tell me I got started on drug X six months ago and since then it's been hard to stand up, we can go and try, try and find something else.
0: Okay. okay All story. right. Let's get to the non-drug options, which you yeah. mentioned again in the article. Um, and I thought there was a couple of interesting things. Maybe you could talk about how to load before a meal. You mentioned about okay. sodium and water. I think that's, that would be very interesting for patients. And then getting to the actual like the compression stockings. You know, which okay. So,
1: mm-hmm. so it's important to use, um, if you can, if your blood pressure is not too high when you're lying down, We always like to ask people to eat salt liberally. So liberalize your salt intake. Sometimes we even give salt tablets to patients. Drink liberally. So target at least two liters, you know, close to two to three liters of of fluids, visible fluids per day. Avoid alcohol. Alcohol tends to have a particularly strong blood pressure lowering effect in these Mm -hmm. patients. So avoid alcohol. Avoid sugary meals. So, carbohydrates have a blood pressure lowering effect in everybody, but especially in these patients. Mm. So, you want to avoid meals that are too high in carbs. Okay. When you first stand up, it's good to, you know, it's counterintuitive. And some doctors tell patients to, stand up in place Mm -hmm. and 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 sort of get their bearings before they start walking that's not a good idea that's not a good idea because you will increase the return of blood to the central circulation by Squeezing your muscles of the lower extremities, and okay. that you get with walking. So, if you're going to stand in place, you should try to use things like crossing your legs, mm-hmm. uh, using something called the cocktail party position.
0: Uh-huh. You, can look
1: for, you can look for pictures of it. It's that.
0: interesting. Okay. So, if, I mean, that, if, that actually raises the pressure a little bit. That's that a, correct. and Very and, interesting. Okay. And
1: if you need to stay in place, and, and I teach that. Uh, or, for patients to do what you were talking about, you know, standing in line at the grocery store. Right. So that they can stand longer. So yeah. there are several
0: tricks. So cross the way, so I get this right. Cause I want to teach my patients. So they, they cross their legs sort of like in a, like you said, uh, like you're in a fancy now, party. It's called the
1: cocktail party. A cocktail position, party. Yes. You have Stance. one leg crossing the other. You, what about, the, what about the
0: arms? Does that matter or not really? The
1: arms don't help as much, but yeah. you can. That would move. That would move yeah. blood from the arms centrally. Okay, but that's a very small amount. There's okay. some value to slightly flex your trunk. Okay, so a little bit of trunk flexing, and what's really helpful if you absolutely cannot sit down is to to put your fo- one of your feet on a stool or a bench uh-huh. and squeeze the, you know, put pressure. Put a little on pressure that. on,
0: almost like a stretch kind of thing. So, so just so the patients know too, because this could be, you know, um, a little bit dangerous, like they're starting to feel that way and all they do is lean on a railing or something. Sit that's, down. That's sit not going to be right, because they're going to end up on the floor if they don't. Don't lean,
1: don't lean. That doesn't yeah. do any good. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you absolutely cannot sit down or lie down, squatting is the most effective way of increasing the blood pressure. But then remember, after you squat, you gotta sit. Uh, if you squat mm. and stand, even normal people pass well, out after this. Yes, they
0: squat and yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Really, really good advice.
1: So I re- I usually spend a lot of time showing pictures of,
0: uh-huh. of oh, how fantastic. people should adapt to yeah. that. Your patients are lucky. You're really you're very good at explaining things. All right, let's get to the medications, and I'm gonna get to my patient again too because it's been really challenging. I mean, as you I mind, said, I was re- do you mind if I talk about oh, yeah. the water? Oh, yes, what the water? Mentioned. Yeah, go so, ahead. I'm sorry.
1: So there's. You can, drinking fluids is important to stay hydrated, but there's a special maneuver, which is water drinking of at least 12 ounces. The studies are usually done with 16 ounces. They need, it needs to be uh, the, the consumed quickly, no more than about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it dilutes the blood in the circulation around the stomach. Mm. And that causes a reflex that increases the amount of noradrenaline. So that's actually, it's, it's not because you're getting rehydrated. It's because you're increasing the output of noradrenaline. And that causes a rise in blood pressure that gives you about uh, 45 minutes or so.
0: Okay, so let me just get this right. Pressure. I want to, because this is really important, again, for this patient I'm dealing with, and I want to really help them. So if... You know he's up in the morning or whatever, and doing some stuff. You know before he's really about to, you know, because he really can't stand for more than like minutes. That if he drinks like a, a full sixteen ounce, you know, bottle, bottle of, of water, water, he may get a good forty five minutes.
1: Over over about five minutes. Now not everybody tolerates that because people, what they feel a little bloated. people or get
0: nauseated. Why? it. Well, we
1: we don't know, but eating... Oh, okay, from drinking it, up,
0: drinking it quickly. Is that what you mean? Because I, mean, yes. I, I could drink this. I drink it slowly, like obviously during the day. But if I was to I, drink all within five minutes.
1: If I drink that bottle in five minutes, I yeah. get very nauseated.
0: Oh, you do. Okay, yeah. well, that's good to know too. I mean, because yeah. if uh, so, it doesn't really help if you drink it slow, like over. It 15 does not. Minutes.
1: You need to drink it fast so mm. that the blood gets diluted and generates this.
0: This but that blood. can give you forty-five minutes. It's like it's like being electric charge. You know, you get. A, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you in the time. in the
1: in the clinical trials, it's very obvious, and mm. some patients tell me that they get their response. Other patients don't get okay. anything at all. But it's worth trying. Okay, it's very benign. It,
0: interesting interesting okay
1: and after that all you got is drugs
0: okay wait, wait one more thing before we get to the drugs too because again this happened with my patient and you can imagine with other diabetic patients he did not tolerate any type of venous compression not only was it uncomfortable he was worried about the circulation you know they felt like it was cutting it off to his feet
1: you, they don't need to worry about the circulation Uh, you need to try to squeeze the blood and you don't do that with low compression. It has to be with high compression at least. So, so if you can buy this on the internet, you need at least something that's called a 20 to 30 millimeter mercury gradient. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that it's squeezing your, your ankle and calves at 30 Mm. and it's squeezing your, your thigh veins at 20. But even that. That is not high enough. The real way to overcome the venous pressure when you stand is by using a a 30-40 gradient one, 40 at the bottom, 30 at the top. And they are very hard to get on I was about especially-
0: to ask uh, yeah I know they're very it sounds like it's like a, like having getting a suit of armor on do you have a particular brand or something that you've no, found I don't, that's helped patients I, no, no and I
1: don't have any conflict of interest no, there, okay. are brands, w- there are many brands that are good there are several yeah. websites that, yeah. that provide it the, the problem is that many insurance companies don't cover them and they are expensive really so, yeah so mm. they, they, and you need to buy a couple pairs so you can wear wash one them and wash in, and right, wear Yeah. One. Yeah. Mm. and unless unless they unless they have urinary or or bowel symptoms i really prefer to wear waist highs even for men they are they have uh, waist highs for men it really gives you an additive component because it compresses the veins, not only up to the thighs, which is 75% of the pooling, but it also covers the pelvic pooling, which is another 25%.
0: You know, I think we really have to talk to the, the company Spanx. They have to come up with the super Spanx. So
1: and, and many people use Spanx. <laughs> oh, do they? Uh, the, yeah.
0: The problem is that Spanx not strong enough. wasn't,
1: no, no, it is, is but it? it's not, it's not
0: graduated. Oh, what do you mean? Is that high enough for... No,
1: the pressure doesn't change from top to bottom. Oh, from bottom oh to
0: top. okay. So it's that medical so, grade type where, of thing. Yeah.
1: And then you can end up with, with blood pooling be, uh, below the, the garment.
0: Oh, so that's very important to note yeah. too. I'm glad I brought that up. Yeah. All right. Let's get where I can catch you on the, the, the medications because uh, I'll just mention them and then hopefully you'll describe maybe when you decide or in what order you decide to try them. Is Patients should be aware of there's a, an adrenal... Type of uh, medication called fluor- fludrocortisone, also called Florinef. There's Midrin, which is what we call like a vasoconstrictor. A lot of people, I think, they used to use it for, for headaches actually in the past because it, you know, when pe- no, I wasn't sure. But I know it raises your blood pressure. And there's Droxydopa, which I had never heard of till recently, and was recommended for my patients. So maybe you could take us through a little bit why or how you would use these medications to. Okay.
1: So the FDA has approved only. Two medications for this, Mm -hmm. midodrine and Mm droxidopa. Midodrine and droxidopa are drugs that act on the blood vessels to squeeze them. And Mm -hmm. that happens both at the level of the arteries and of the veins. Mm -hmm. They are both pretty effective. So most patients get some benefit from them. Some patients find them life changing, others don't. So you just have to try. The major side effect from them is increasing the blood pressure. That's why I told you at the top of the show that that's why I need to know what the seated blood pressure and the lying down blood pressure is, because many patients, I say, you cannot lie down during the day. Cannot. Forbidden from it.
0: Mm. Because, to, because the, pressure because will go the too blood high. pressure goes too high. Okay on these On these medications?
1: On these medications.
0: Wow. Correct. Wow.
1: So so again, you're using a medication that will allow them to stand for longer periods of time. But the price that you're going to pay is that the blood
0: pressure that's, will... That's clean. really interesting and difficult because if you think about it, again, a lot of these patients are used to lying or sitting for long periods because they haven't been able to. And now they have to be on their feet, which even most of us, I think... Really? No, they oh. don't
1: need to be on their feet. Oh, they can they, be sitting. They
0: can they can sit. Oh, okay. With their, with they their feet, they just can't lie, but They can't just be lying with their down. Feet
1: down. Feet they down. Can't, okay. They can't lie down on a recliner with the oh, okay. feet up, mm-hmm. and they can't lie down in bed.
0: Right. Okay. All right, so, that makes sense. That's really and, important information.
1: Okay. And and what's good is that um, you know I often use twenty uh, four hour blood pressure monitoring, which measures the the blood <laughs> pressure throughout the day, uh, so that I can show them. And we can make decisions together. You know, okay. we say, you know, you want to stand up and not pass out? You got to do this during the day. And I'll cover you during the night so that, you know, we're protecting your heart and your brain right. from the high blood pressure part. It's a it's a dance. It's
0: a little balancing. Yeah, it sounds like and, a balancing and act. And I'm
1: very clear that there's no perfection. Yeah. So, so those are the most commonly used What drugs. would you
0: say the difference, though, between them? I, I, again, in my patient, that we, they tried the midrin, And again, because he had cardiac history, he couldn't tolerate. He got chest pain. So now they're going to be going to Droxydopa. Do you find that, I think that's milder? Is that hopefully going to be more uh, beneficial or it so could still be a it problem? Causes,
1: it causes less high blood pressure. The midodrine is a more potent, potent yeah. for, drug for blood pressure. But the difference is that midodrine usually lowers the heart rate a little bit, whereas droxydopa increases the heart rate a little bit. So it's going to depend on someone with heart disease it's going to depend on the balance of the blood pressure and the heart rate effect, What whether that person is going to have angina or not.
0: And I think they had recommended to him that he take the droxedopa, for example, like an hour or two before a meal. So let's say he got up in the morning maybe within an hour he would take it because let's say lunch is like a bigger meal. So that's, that's yeah. how he so, should do it.
1: So the way, these are not long acting drugs yeah. and you don't need them at night, right? Right, so right. A so standard, the a standard regimen is waking up four hours later and four hours later. So oh. let's say- So, so as soon as you seven, get up, take, take it by the bed. 7 a.m., 11 a.m., and 3 or 4 p.m. Okay. There are other patients- who don't need the afternoon. It's, very, it's mm. very common for people to feel better in the mm-hmm. afternoon.
0: Right, right. So
1: many of my patients can take only a morning dose. And, and it's usually
0: can... about 100 milligrams? Is that like the typical no, dose? Is uh, it higher? So,
1: so for metadrine, we start at 2.5 and, and go up to 10, sometimes right. 15. I don't get, you, you don't right. get much bang after 10 milligrams. Droxydopa starts at 100, goes all the way to 600.
0: At one in, at one time, single dose single correct. dose, so it could be 600, three to two to, two or three times a day, yeah so a, I say just, maximum I, dose.
1: I just ran from from my office to do this podcast mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, and the patient I just saw five minutes before we went on was on six hundred three times a day.
0: oh really, and he seems to be doing okay, yeah, mm-hmm. and she's doing no. fine. great, 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 great. Mm-hmm. Dr. Pishada. this was amazing, I really appreciate you taking the time today and I, as I said, I think so many people out there are suffering and they don't know what's out there and they're probably even having trouble finding a specialist that can help them with this. So I, I think you've shed a lot of light on the, is there anything that I can kind of give a handle if people want to, you know, find out more about the work you're doing uh, in this yeah, area? So,
1: so sure. We, um, we have um, in our hypertension center at the Yale New Haven Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, we uh, we treat patients with orthostatic hypotension. It's uh, I'm, I work with three other colleagues and a nurse practitioner, so mm-hmm. we have a team. The there are several other centers throughout the country, and I encourage you to to read on those things. The Parkinson's Foundation and the American Autonomic Society uh, has released a joint statement about four years ago that provides technical information. But I think that the 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 layperson can also read and get a sense of how they can troubleshoot, you know, do I have to ask about this medication? What lifestyle changes can I make? And what are the options? There are several Mm -hmm. other drug options uh, beyond what we just discussed. terms of figuring out how to best manage this balance of low blood pressures when you stand up and high blood pressures often at other times.
0: That's right. is terrific. Thanks so much. I okay. hope all of you enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions, please go to my Instagram, Instagram account at the smartest doctor in the room and we'll try to get back to you. Stay well.